0: Good morning, and as always, thank you for tuning in again. I hope this video finds that you and your families are still doing well. My name is David Creech, and I'm with the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. You can see our times of services on the screen here, and you can check out our website at www.godsredeemed.org. You can also see our times of services there as well as important announcements. Today we're going to continue our study in the New Testament book of Acts, the the Acts of the Apostles. This is lesson number nine. We'll be continuing our study of Acts chapter nine. So if you have your uh, Bibles, go ahead and be turning over to Acts chapter nine. Recall from last week that we did a sort of uh, deep dive into Saul's conversion story. In order to do that, we took a look at Luke's retelling of Saul's conversion here in chapter 9 and combined it with the Apostle Paul's own words before an angry mob in Acts chapter 22 and his own words before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26 with a little bit of information taken from Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia in Galatians chapter 1. Now by way of review, uh, we learned that Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul, was on his way to Damascus. This was a city in Syria about 140 miles north of Jerusalem. Now why was he going to Damascus? Well, uh, like we said last week, he was on a search-and-destroy mission against Christians. Uh, he had, uh, I guess you would say, the equivalent of a search warrant from the high priest in Jerusalem to search out Christians and take them bound back to Jerusalem to stand trial and, and presumably to be put to death if they would uh, not renounce their Christianity. <clears throat> While on that road to Damascus, uh, about noon, as he neared the city, uh, a bright light, what is described as being brighter than the noonday sun, shines around him. He falls to the ground. He hears a voice of Jesus asking, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Uh, We learn that he was chosen by Jesus to be a messenger. And we talked about how that's what an apostle was, a messenger. What kind of messenger? Well, uh, a a messenger, uh, Ananias would say in Acts chapter 9 and verse 15, uh, would say that would, would bear the name of Jesus before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Uh, A messenger that would, uh, as described in verse 16, be made to suffer many things for the sake of Jesus. Uh, Saul asks the all important question Lord, what do you want me to do? Do you remember how Jesus answered? Jesus said, Arise, go into the city, that is Damascus, and there. You will be told what you must do. We pointed out last week that every time someone in the New Testament asked what they needed to do, they were told what they needed to do. That's called obedience. And and obedience is absolutely essential to salvation. We also talked about how God uses men as instruments of salvation. Jesus could have bypassed Ananias altogether and told Saul exactly what he needed to do right there on that road leading to Damascus. Uh, Jesus could have healed Saul right then and there of his blindness. Uh, Jesus could have made it so that Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit right there on that road leading to Damascus, but he didn't. Certainly there was a lesson For Saul and all of that and a lesson for us as well remember over in 1st Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21 that it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe and also in Romans chapter 10 verses 13 and 14 tells us that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? Have you ever wondered why God doesn't just zap us up to heaven the instant we believe? Wouldn't that just save a whole lot of trouble and heartache? Well, because it's not part of God's plan. Because what many in the world view as foolishness, the preaching of the gospel message, and being a a living example of the gospel message to others, uh, that is what God intended. It's been said that every Christian should preach the gospel message every day. Sometimes, use words. Think about that, that. The life we live... Maybe be the only sermon some people ever hear. So men, as instruments of salvation, to preach the words of salvation revealed by the Holy Spirit. And Saul, being blind for three days, is led by the hand into the city of Damascus. A disciple by the name of Ananias is instructed to go see Saul. Ananias then lays his hands on Saul and Saul's eyesight is restored. We left off last week's lesson with the words of Ananias to Saul there in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And we asked this question, at what point, in Saul's conversion story, was he actually saved? Uh, We said that the answer to that question may very well be the most important answer we come up with in our lifetime. So this week, we're going to spend the majority of our time together answering that question. Why? Because it's so important. And and I feel like I need to start by talking about what it means to be saved and the role obedience plays in salvation. <clears throat> I think it just makes sense that if we're going to answer the question, at what point in Saul's conversion story was he actually saved, that, that we need to start off talking about what it means to be saved. <laughs> so so let's just take a few minutes and, and look at some passages from the New Testament that talk about being saved. There there are a lot of them. We'll only examine a few. First of all, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 22. Jesus is talking to his apostles and said, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Okay, but that doesn't tell us a whole lot, except that perhaps being saved requires some effort on our part, uh, enduring to the end, and that being saved may mean that we're not going to be very popular in this world. Look with me over in Luke chapter 13 and verse 23. Someone asked Jesus this question, Lord, are there few who are saved? Um, in the verses that follow, we see a somewhat lengthy answer to that question, an answer that includes an illustration to help them more fully understand. But but Jesus tells them that many will seek to enter heaven, but will not be able to, and, and concludes with a chilling statement that you see highlighted in red there, um, that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus' answer here mirrors the, the abbreviated response over Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where he tells them to enter by the narrow gate or the narrow way. But what verse 14 calls the difficult way because the easy way leads to destruction, Jesus says, and the difficult way leads to life. And and yes, he says right here, there are few who find it. There are only few, relatively speaking, who are saved. And, And that's an interesting point to make, because I think it would be a true statement to say that most people today believe they will be saved. I mean, chances are we've We've been to enough funerals to know that if you believe what is said there, practically everyone goes to heaven. It doesn't matter what kind of life that person lived. If they ever once even hinted at believing in God and believing that Jesus was the Son of God, or possibly that, that they never came right out and openly denied the existence of God or Jesus, then they're good to go Um, obedience that has nothing to do with it it seems what a clever tactic by satan to soothe the minds of men to lull them into thinking that no matter what they do when this life is over heaven will be their reward the world says nearly everyone is going to heaven Jesus said, there are few who find it. What do you believe? Let's look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 21. Another passage that talks about being saved. Recall from Peter's sermon here on the day of Pentecost. He quoted from the prophet Joel in the Old Testament when he said, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? I think perhaps we get this idea of someone simply invoking the name of the Lord or perhaps making an appeal to God, of someone crying out to God. And certainly there is some of that, of someone crying out with a humble and contrite heart, a heart heavy laden with repentance, But I think it is interesting that the Greek word translated here as calls on that you see highlighted in red here is the word, it's the Greek word, uh, pikaleo, which means to be named after someone or to allow oneself to take a surname, In fact, if you have a a Bible concordance and you look at all the places this Greek word is used, it is most often translated using the word name or surname or the word called, but in reference to a name. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. Again, there are many. Uh, Back in Acts chapter 4 and verse 36, Remember, we talked about how a Joseph, and most translations will say Joseph here. It's the same name with a different spelling. Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the Apostle. Do you remember us talking about that? That word named that I have highlighted here is the same Greek word translated as calls on in Acts chapter 2, verse 21. That's the word pikaleo. The other example I want to use is from James chapter 2 and verse 7. Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? Now, that word name is a different Greek word here, but what I want you to notice is that last word, called that I have highlighted in red, the name by which you are called. That's the Greek word pikaleo. It's the same Greek word that we saw over in Acts chapter 2 and verse 21. So in Acts 2.21, it is literally to take on the name of Christ or to be called by the name of Christ. That also harmonizes with the fact that when we become Christians, we are adopted as his children, and we take his name. Paul also quoted that same passage over in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 and 14. We, we looked at that uh, part of that passage earlier. Read this passage and think of it this way. Whoever takes on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And how shall they take on the name of him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And of course, the words of Ananias, as is related to today's lesson in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, taking on the name of the Lord. Just something to think about. So back to our passages talking about what it means to be saved. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says to the church at Corinth, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So there's something in the gospel message that saves us. Paul proclaimed the same thing to the church at Rome in Romans 1.16, that the gospel was God's power to save. But let's not forget the rest of this passage here in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 2. We're only saved if... We receive the gospel and hold fast to it. There's the obedience part coming into play again. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 2. Let me look at verses 8 and 9. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 tells us that we are saved by grace through faith. This passage gives us some clue as to how we are saved. We see a sort of dichotomy here, two mutually exclusive parts, two sides of the coin, if you will. There's God's part, and then there's our part. Grace is an unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. We can't have grace for ourselves. Uh, When it comes to salvation, that is God's part. Only he can have grace toward us. Without God's part, without the grace of God, none of us can be saved. Uh, Faith, on the other hand, well, that's our part. God is not going to have faith for us. Only we can do that. Every soul that has ever lived has had that choice. And some people get hung up on verse 9 where it says not of works lest anyone should boast and what do i mean by people getting hung up on that is that many try to lump together anything we do as a work that goes back to uh, what must i do to be saved Um, that argument. Many will claim there is nothing we can do. Christ has already done it all. Uh, If there was anything for us to do, then then as the saying goes, that's a work and works can't save us. But we need to be very careful here. The, The Bible does talk about works that can't save us, but it also talks about works that can save us. Works, in fact, that are essential to saving us. So how do we make a distinction? Like always, we must depend on the context to tell us what kind of works the passage is talking about. There, There are passages that make it very clear that the works of the law, that is, the law of Moses that many of the Jews were still observing, could not save a person. In fact, in Paul's day, many Jewish Christians were still trying to impress upon Gentile Christians the necessity of obeying the dietary restrictions and and circumcision and the traditions of the old law. And for that reason, Paul said a lot to the church at Rome about how those works of the law could not save them. Um, many such passages will be quoted something like this. Turn over to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. Let's look at this passage here. Knowing that a man is not justified by works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Um, By the way, that word justified refers to a process through which, well, it's as if we never sinned in the first place. Okay, Knowing that a man is not justified by works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard something like that before? Notice I have highlighted parts of this passage that seem to reinforce the idea that works can't save us, but rather faith is what saves us. But is that... What this passage says. Let's read it again, this time without leaving out any words. <laughs> Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, okay, now that's an important distinction that was left out when I read it before, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified." You may recall that earlier in Galatians, in Galatians chapter one, verses eight and nine, Paul warned the churches in Galatia not to depart from the gospel that had been preached to them. And and part of that departure was a return to that old law. And Paul warns them over and over in Galatians Don't do it. That old law can't save you. And by the way, the book of Hebrews preaches the same message loud and clear to the Jewish Christians of that day. Other passages, like back over in Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 9, make it clear that works of merit, you know, that is our, our feeble attempts to work our way to heaven, are useless when it comes to salvation. This passage is saying that if that were somehow part of God's plan of redemption, that that if we could simply, through good works alone, earn our way to heaven, then people would have reason to boast about it. Paul is telling the Ephesians here, that is absolutely not the case. That was not God's plan. And then there are passages that talk about works that are the byproducts of obedience and the byproducts of humble hearts that realize that we owe a debt we can never repay. But we're going to start paying on it anyway because of our love for Christ, because of our appreciation for what he did for us, because we have taken his name, we are called by his name, and because he is our Lord and Master and these we would call works of obedience or works of righteousness, and and these are the kinds of works that are absolutely essential to salvation. Now, how do I know that? Well, let's look at some passages over in James chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. Many people today teach some variation of the faith-only doctrine. All you have to do is believe. All you have to do is have faith. Well, this passage says faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's a dead faith. Will a dead faith save someone? Just a few verses later in uh, verse 20, but do you not know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Dead. And verse 22, by works, faith is made perfect. Verse 24, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. And incidentally, for the faith only crowd, this is the only place in the Bible where the words faith and only are used together. And it says not by faith only. Down in verse 26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Look over in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 13. John the apostle, who was given a glimpse of the day of judgment, says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged each one according to his works. I mean, <clears throat> how many times does the Holy Spirit have to whack us over the head with that before it starts to sink in, that that works, the right kind of works, are absolutely essential to salvation. Again, many people say works can't save us. The Bible says, we will be judged by our works and that our faith without works is a dead faith. What do you say? I know uh, this has been quite the detour from our original question, what does it mean to be saved? But we've, we've learned a lot, haven't we? we? We learned that we must endure to the end in order to be saved. Being saved requires some effort on our part. And being saved likely means that we're not going to be part of the in crowd, but we'll be the only ones getting in to heaven. We learn that unlike what a lot of the uh, world around us teaches and believes, there are relatively few who will be saved. And it's not like being saved is some kind of lottery. It's not like There has been or will be this random drawing to determine who will be lost and who will be saved. The choice is always ours to make, whether to obey or disobey what Jesus and what the Holy Spirit said to do. Sadly, most will not choose the difficult way and will be eternally lost. We learn that whoever calls on the name of the Lord, whoever takes on the name of Jesus Christ, will be saved. And that's something we must hold fast to. I've heard it stated that God does not adopt children and then toss them to the curb. No, on the contrary, our loving God wants to adopt everyone as his children. But he will only adopt those that want to be adopted. And we ourselves always maintain the choice to remain a child of God or not to remain a child of God. We learn that we are saved by the grace of God, but not grace alone. If we were saved purely by the grace of God, then everyone would be saved. To say otherwise is to say that the grace of God is insufficient. No, it is his plan that we do our part. We must do the part that God will not do for us, and that is that we must have faith. We learned that the kind of faith that saves is the kind of faith that obeys. It is possible to have just a superficial kind of faith, a faith that is devoid of obedience. And that's a useless faith, a, a dead faith, as we read earlier. That's a faith that won't save anyone. And I wanna wrap up this part of our lesson with the rest of this passage that we read earlier uh, here in Revelation chapter 20. I wanna begin in verse 12. We'll repeat a little bit of what we read earlier, but. At beginning of verse 12, this is John speaking about this vision that he saw of this great white throne of judgment, the judgment scene. And I saw the dead, John says, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to their works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So what does it mean to be saved? It means we are saved from the wrath to come, as Jesus said to the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Luke chapter 3 and verse 7. It means we are saved from what is described here in verse 14 as the second death, that of being cast into the lake of fire. It means our name is written in the book of life. So if we jump back over to Acts chapter 9 and verse 1, Back to kind of the the original question of the day. At what point in Saul's conversion story was he actually saved? Uh, At what point in this story was Saul's name added to the book of life? Now some would say, well, right there on the road to Damascus, as that bright light shone around him and as Jesus revealed himself to Saul, you can take it to the bank that Saul was a believer in Jesus Christ at that point. Therefore, he was saved. Some would say, well, at the point where Ananias placed his hands on Saul and Saul received his sight again. I mean, isn't that what salvation is all about? We, you know, he was blind and then he could see. You know, at the point where he was healed and he could see again, at the point where he was filled with the Holy Spirit, well, that's when he was saved. Still others would say, no, now now wait a minute. It was only at the point where he was baptized that he was saved. Well, what do you say? Would you choose one of these three answers, or do you have a different answer entirely? Well, we go back to Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. Let's let's look at this passage and let me ask this question. Can a person's name be written in the book of life before their sins are washed away? We need to be careful how we answer that because if we answer yes to that question, if we believe that a person's name can be added to the book of life, before their sins are washed away, then, well, then everyone will be saved. And that contradicts what Jesus said about there being few who find it. That is, there are relatively few who will find salvation. The truth is, if a person's name can be added to that book of life before their sins are washed away, then Saul would have been saved right there in the midst of dragging Christians from their homes and beating them, casting them uh, into prison, and even putting them to death. This passage right here in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16 ties the washing away of sins to calling on or putting on the name of the Lord. But this passage also ties baptism to the washing away of sins. And I know some will say, yes, but baptism is a work and works can't save us. Well, we've already discussed how works alone can't save us, but how works of obedience are absolutely essential to salvation. Is baptism a work? Well, yes, but, but but only in the sense that it is something we do and something we are told we must do in order to be saved. It's a work of obedience. Now, I don't know, some people might say, hold on now, but what do you mean we are told to do it? Well, let's listen to some of the words of the Holy Spirit over in John chapter 3 and verse 5. Jesus himself speaking to Nicodemus, said most assuredly i say to you unless one is born of water and the spirit he cannot enter the kingdom of god first peter chapter 3 verses 20 and 21. the apostle peter tells us how during the days of noah eight souls that would be noah and his wife his three sons and their wives eight souls were saved Through water, in verse twenty-one, it says there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Now, an antitype is a figure or a comparison. In other words, just as those eight souls in the days of Noah were saved through water, today we are also saved through water, and that's by baptism. Uh, It goes on to state here that baptism has nothing to do with the washing away of filth of the flesh, um, but that it's the answer of a good conscience toward God. Can a person be saved who does not answer with a good conscience toward God? Some would say yes. Mm, What do you say? We don't have time to look at it today, but I would encourage you to go back and read the story about Naaman over in 2 Kings chapter 5. It's a story about a man who was the commander of an invading army, a man who was healed of his leprosy by dipping himself in the dirty Jordan River. Someone has astutely pointed out that if we can understand the role water played in the saving of Naaman, then we can understand the role baptism plays in saving us today. What was that role? Obedience. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Recall those men on the day of Pentecost, men who were cut to the heart, and asked the apostles, men and brethren, what must we do? Do you remember Peter's answer? Was it just pray the sinner's prayer? No, he said, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Baptized for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. Doesn't that sound a little bit like what Ananias said to Saul? Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, washing away your sins. After all, if your sins are washed away, then they are forgiven. And then, of course, over in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 16, not my words, but the words of Jesus, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Now, many people today teach a variation of this. They teach he who believes is saved and should be baptized. If we believe that, then we must also believe that Saul was saved on the road to Damascus. And he was saved before before his sins were washed away. Jesus taught, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. The question is, what do you believe? And if you happen to be listening today and you're still not convinced, I want you to consider this, this table I've got on the slide up here. If it is the blood of Christ that washes or cleanses uh, us from sin, it cleanses or washes away sin. Over in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, Revelation 1 and verse 5, the last part of that verse says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, Actually, the whole part of the verse the last part says to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood first john one seven I can get over to it here first john one seven but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son cleanses us from all sin. Furthermore, it's the blood of Christ that was shed for the remission or the forgiveness of sin. We see that in Matthew 26 and verse 28, uh, the words of Jesus himself, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And we also see that baptism is for the remission of sins. There in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And we also see that baptism washes away sin. Right there in Acts 22 and verse 16. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. You know, when we put all that together, the inescapable conclusion is that the blood of Jesus was shed for the remission, the the forgiveness of sins, and that the blood of Jesus washes away sins. And the way that I come into contact with that blood today is the same way Christians in the first century came into contact with that blood, and that was through the obedient act of baptism. Now, Romans chapter 6 and verse 13 three in the following verses is just a a wonderful illustration it starts off by asking the question do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death it goes on to paint a glorious picture for us that just as Jesus Christ was crucified and buried and raised again by the glory of the Father to walk in newness of life. Even so, we must crucify the old man of sin. As it's talked about here in this passage. Uh, Verse 6 there. Uh, Couldn't find it for some reason. We must crucify the old man of sin, be buried with him in baptism, as it says there in verse 4, and rise to walk in newness of life. Um, do you see that how how that when we obey the gospel, we are duplicating what Christ came before us to do? Uh, he did what none of us could do. Again, what a glorious picture. We've referred to the book of Acts a number of times as the Book of Conversions because it's filled with people being converted, with people being saved. And we stated that obeying the gospel is as simple as opening up our Bibles and reading what the first century Christians did to be saved. And then just doing what they did, knowing that we will be just as saved as they were. Now what did they do? Well, in every instance that we have discussed, Go back and reread the first nine chapters if you don't believe me. And in every instance in the book of Acts that we have yet to discuss, people either heard the word and rejected it, or they heard the word, believed it, and were baptized. Isn't that what Jesus said back in Mark chapter 16 and verse 16? He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Can we do anything less than that and then expect on the day of judgment to hear those words well done good and faithful servant. Well uh, we're out of time for today Uh, thank you for watching or listening whichever the case may be I know I spent a lot of time answering one simple question today but again it's a very important question Many of you listening are probably thinking, well, I already knew all of that, but my hope is that at least some of what has been said today will give others something to think about, and it may very well provide you with some useful tools as we reach out to a lost and dying world. As we stated earlier uh, in the words of Jesus regarding salvation, there are few who find it. If that is true, and I certainly believe that it is, then we need to do everything possible. We need to do everything that is in our own power to ensure that we are among the few. And that means diligently, diligently studying what the Holy Spirit has revealed as truth and then simply doing what it says. For next week, Lord willing, we'll finish up Acts chapter 9 and get into Acts chapter 10. Thank you.